G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Neil in the hot seats and our special guest this hour is Stephen Potts, family lawyer back with us. He's the managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers based in Brisbane and we'll talk about family law today and as we do when we talk about family law, always good to say that here on 2020 and on the Vision Radio Network we are always interested and uh, encouraging of families to stay together and to flourish together, of marriages to flourish. And, of course, we realise, in a sense, we're realists, that uh, that sometimes things fall to pieces. Sometimes our marriages are collapsing. Sometimes there are people who are close to us. People, sometimes we thought that their marriages would endure, but uh, for whatever reason, things got into difficulties. And so what do you do as a Christian uh, when it's your marriage, when it's your family that's floundering? Uh, what do you do in a legal sense when you're faced with issues to do with families that do collapse and the issues of divorce? Well, that's why it might be very important for us to talk with a family lawyer and to talk about some of those uh, issues when they come to a practical reality. So, Stephen Potts, great to have you back with us here on 2020. It's good to be back, Neil. And I know, Stephen, that when you uh, deal in your own law practice, uh, when you're dealing with families, and this is your primary responsibility when you're dealing with issues of family law, you're coming from a Christian foundation, and I guess that must be refreshing for a lot of people that you would be dealing with on a day-to-day basis. That's right. Um, it's good for them to know that the person that they're speaking to about very personal issues, their family issues, that the person who's listening to that and giving them advice is coming from a similar worldview to many of them. Obviously, our clients are all across the, um, the spectrum of religious belief, but many of them are Christians. So for those who are, it's it's good for them to know that when they explain something to me and why their re- what their reasons are for wishing to take the action that they're thinking about, they understand that I know where they're coming from. So when we talk about the issue of domestic violence and family violence, I mean, how serious is this issue uh, across the nation? I know you monitor statistics, mm. and uh, you're based in Queensland, so perhaps some of the statistics you most deal with are Queensland-based, but, but in, a, in a general sense, across the board, uh, it's a real issue in so many families and so many communities that are very much uh, being hurt by the pain of That's um, right. domestic and, violence. And I think that it comes, there's probably two main reasons we're hearing a lot more about it. One is, as a, as a society, we're prepared to talk about it more than we were perhaps in the past. So there's a greater level of awareness by people. The second thing is that uh, quite a number of jurisdictions over the last few years have changed their definitions of domestic violence within the legislation to encapsulate broader areas of conduct. So whereas in the past, people might have only viewed domestic violence as being physical conduct toward another person, it's now a much broader spectrum of that. And while domestic violence legislation varies from state to state, some of it is taken up in the Family Law Act for uh, 
couples who are separating and making arrangements for their children. And that's a fairly broad definition as well. So I think the combination of a greater awareness in the community of domestic violence and uh, accompanied that, accompanying that is the broader definition means there are statistics show that there is more and more domestic violence, but it's it's not clear whether that's because there's more domestic violence occurring or whether there's better reporting of what's happening. Well, we want to invite listeners to be a part of our conversation today. And uh, and so uh, there's a, obviously a very broad way we can talk about this. Uh, we could talk about biblical foundations. And today is not necessarily what we'd call a, a counselling session for people who are going through or have been through domestic violence because we really want to deal with some of the, the more practical uh, legal aspects of actually how you deal with that and definitions and those sorts of things. But if you'd like to participate in our conversation today, our talkback line is open. 1-800-880-876. What type of domestic violence have you had to endure? Uh, how much do you put up with before you actually seek safety? I mean, how far do you go uh, before you need to perhaps ring the police? What's your experience? Uh, what do you do to protect your children when you're in a domestic violence, a family violence situation? And, uh, and importantly, does your church help play a role in family harmony and stability? Well, you might have a point of view to share on any of those types of uh, topics and issues. We are talking domestic violence, family violence today. Our special guest is Stephen Potts, family lawyer, and we're talking about these issues. Uh, that's one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six to be part of our conversation. Let's talk about the, uh, the kinds of behaviour that we would consider to be domestic violence, Stephen, because w- when we talk about the law, we're talking about definitions. That's right. So let, let's talk about some of those definitions. Well, I mean, before that typically people thought of physical abuse as being domestic violence. And that certainly is one of the first categories of violence that's often mentioned in the legislation. But as time has gone on, governments around Australia have acknowledged that domestic violence is far broader than physical attributes. And it's far broader than just verbal abuse too. Some people say, yes, I appreciate that verbal abuse is also domestic violence. Well, it is. But there's a whole range of other conduct. For example, uh, emotional abuse where it might not be specific specific comments made to a person that are derogatory or which are swearing at them or yelling at them or things like that. But it can also be what we might call passive aggressive behavior or threats to harm yourself to try and get somebody else to take um, take pity on you or to um, agree with your point of view. So if you if you leave me, I will I'll commit suicide. Those kinds of threats actually can fall within the definitions of domestic violence. So it's not just the threats, it's the manipulation that can come by your own conduct. That's uh, right. Yeah, the seeking of uh, sympathy uh, by, uh, by actually making these veiled uh, passive uh, threats. Yes, that's right. And not just against a person. It could be a threat to damage their property or to do injury to their pet or things like that. It can also be um, behaviour, for example, like withholding financial support can actually be consider domestic violence in certain circumstances. Now, that's something that's not limited just to people who might be in a married relationship or de facto in a couple relationship because most legislation talks about domestic relationships and doesn't limit it to just a husband and wife or people who are in a a physical relationship. It can include parents and, uh, and children. It can include siblings. It can include people who have that domestic relationship in that broadest sense. And of course, if somebody is 
say, physically incapacitated and they rely on a carer or another family member to help them out with their banking or with their uh, grocery shopping and things like that, then when the person who is helping starts to take control of the finances or starts to try and manipulate the relationship to gain an advantage, then that too can be considered domestic violence. And of course, you can't see always with twenty twenty vision uh, what will happen in these relationships when they start out. Uh, when you talk about husbands, wives, carers, uh, things can change over time. And so you've always got to have your wits about you in some sense uh, so that you're not manipulated and having the wool pulled over your eyes and then all of a sudden you become a victim of abuse. That's right. Although I think there's, there's, a def- there's a distinction that needs to be drawn between people who are being manipulated like that and and what actually happens in many relationships, which is where people take on different responsibilities within the marriage. So it's not uncommon for, for me to act for a person who says, well, actually, I don't really know anything about the financial circumstances because my husband or my wife handled all of that. And it's, that's not something that's actually gender specific because in any, in any relationship, it ought to be based on trust and mutual respect. And, and often it starts like that. And one person, perhaps because of their work arrangements, is, is more able to do those kinds of administrative things. They handle the banking, they pay the bills, they organise when the insurance is going to be paid, all of those kinds of things. And then what ends up happening is the other person just has no knowledge of it. Now, that's fine as long as the relationship is intact and it's a healthy relationship. And even if the person's not making all of the uh, day-to-day transactions or decisions, they're still involved in the overall discussion about what's happening. But where it becomes problematic is when they're being left out of that conversation and then particularly for people who can't control their financial circumstances, for example, makes it very hard if the relationship breaks down because they think, well, where can I go? How can I afford to move out of here? What steps can I take to protect myself if if that uh, manipulative behaviour moves from just financial matters to verbal abuse and then perhaps towards physical abuse? Let's take some calls. Our talkback line is open and some of our conversation today will be guided by your calls. So what types of domestic violence have you had to endure? Uh, How much do you put up with before you actually seek safety? Uh, What have you done to help protect children when there's been that sort of circumstance? Well, we're talking issues of the law today, the Family Law Act. Family lawyer Stephen Potts is our guest. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-880-876. Let's take a call from Dana in Brisbane. Hello, Dana. Welcome to 2020. Hello. Hi, Dana. What's your contribution to our conversation, or do you have a question for Stephen? Well, um... I do have a question for Stephen, but I just wanted to like run something past you from more, say, a Christian perspective. Sure. And that is, um, I'm seeking. I've actually been granted a temporary um, domestic violence order, and I've since been to court, and it's been contested. So now I have to go for a hearing. But my dilemma is that it's against my mother, my own mother, and it was in the hope to protect my own children. But I'm really struggling with it because it's not so much a physical thing, it's it's more an emotional thing and torment and like boundaries being crossed, some pretty serious ones as well. But I keep hearing from the people around me, namely like the police and courts and, and close friends and family that I should pursue it. But something inside of me struggles and says to me, I wonder if this is what God 
would want me to do, you know, considering that it's my own mother. Is there something perhaps that I need to do? Is it me that needs to change? It's just really confusing because it's not always something you can see. Um, and as far as the legal side of it goes, um, I don't qualify for legal aid because my husband's income exceeds the, the, the cutoff. Well, but I can't afford a lawyer. <laughs> well, there's a couple of issues that are tied up there, um, Diana. Yeah. Let, me, let me deal first with the issue of a temporary protection order because it's helpful to understand the distinction between a temporary protection order and a final protection order. When, mm-hmm. when the court makes a temporary protection order, it only needs to be satisfied. You're in Brisbane, you said? Yes. Yeah, okay. So in, in Queensland, the court only needs to be satisfied, firstly, that domestic violence has occurred, and mm-hmm. secondly, um, that the, it's supported by evidence that the court thinks is is reasonable. It does. The court doesn't actually need to go into a very detailed discussion of the evidence when it grants that temporary protection order. And it, all it's designed to do is to protect people until the court can investigate it properly. And that's what will happen at the trial. Now, if your okay. mother contests it, what... What happens when it gets to a trial is that the the magistrate who hears your your case will have to determine firstly whether or not domestic violence has occurred, which that's going to be probably a fairly easy step to satisfy if you've already got a temporary protection order. But Mm -hmm. the second thing that the court's got to determine is whether um, whether it's necessary or desirable for there to be an order, okay? And what the court's got to weigh up there is what's actually happening here. Do we need to make sure that this person has ongoing protection? Now, a protection order usually lasts for two years. Certainly under Queensland legislation, it lasts for two years. It can last for a shorter period or a longer period if it's varied by the court. But by having a protection order out against your mother, that doesn't mean that there's to be no communication with her necessarily. It doesn't mean that all avenues of communication with her are cut off. What it means, though, is that the way in which your mum communicates with you needs to be governed by particular boundaries. All protection orders, in Queensland at least, have a standard clause that says you must be of good behaviour and not commit domestic violence. And then there are a range of other conditions that can be added to that order. And they can include not to contact a person or it might be not to come to a place where they live or work or not to come within a particular distance of them. Or it might be that they can communicate but only in accordance with specific parameters, for example, by text message or by email rather than face-to-face. And sometimes that's helpful because it means that the channel of communication can remain open but it's on your terms. So, for example, if you had an order that only allowed communication by email, that would mean that your mum could communicate with you by email, but you could choose when to reply to her and you could choose what you wanted to reply about rather than getting caught into an argument or feeling like you're being manipulated. I see. Dana, yeah. when it comes to the uh, the Christian uh, aspect of your question, what do we do as a Christian when we've got a dispute within our family? Well, there are obviously legal ways, and uh, and Steve's uh, describing some of those ways that you can manage the legalities of how you communicate so that everyone can be protected and all that. There are these sorts of issues, aren't there, aren't there that, that drive us to our knees in prayer? And we humble ourselves before God. We recognize that families are God's idea and that we want to communicate well within our families. And so there is a sense in which this is a circumstance where you really do need to be prayerful. But secondarily to that, I don't know whether you're a member of a local church at all, but oftentimes, I am, I am, yeah. oftentimes uh, just a intimate communication with your pastor 
or there may be someone who leads a uh, perhaps a ladies' ministry within your church, someone that can be a backstop, someone who can be a shoulder to cry on when you need it, uh, but a pastoral care oversight when you're going through the challenge that you are within your family. And of course, uh, and thirdly to that, uh, always the way we communicate with one another in our family, oftentimes when there's a disagreement, when there's a dispute, uh, we're often very vocal and uh, we can actually say some of the harshest, nastiest things within families and we need to uh, draw that back and always communicate with a real gentleness, and that will dis- that will uh, help displace some of the uh, some of those sort of uh, nastiness issues that that sometimes present themselves. Dana, there's one other um, thing that I would encourage you about, and that is you were concerned about um, legal representation and the cost of the representation. Often, when people are a private applicant, even if they don't have legal aid, the Queensland Police will prosecute the protection order application for them. So just speak with the local police station about that. They may be prepared to do that. But taking up um, Neil's point about the involvement of someone like a pastoral staff or someone um, within a church, one of the best ways that you can actually look at restoring that relationship in the long term is if you have a protection order in place for that period of time, one year, two years, something like that, use that period of time while the order is in place to go to that other person, like someone on the pastoral staff of your church, and say, look, I want to be able to communicate with my mum. It hasn't worked while we've been doing it ourselves. I've got a protection order in place at the moment. I'd like to see whether you can help us to actually restore our our relationship and the way that we communicate. And you use that protection order as a way of providing a safe boundary in which you can communicate. And if things start to get a bit heated, well, you've got both the order and that pastoral person to act as a buffer so that you're not being exposed to it. And the other thing that need, you, that uh, might help you in your thinking about it is that a protection order is not a criminal offence. So if you're concerned that your mum will have something on her criminal record, which is a protection order, that's not the case. A protection order is designed only to provide protection. If somebody breaches a protection order, that can become a criminal offence and they might get a criminal record for it. But the actual existence of an order in and of itself is not something that goes on your criminal record. Dana, does that answer your question at all? Oh, yes, it does. Thank you. Well, Dana, thank you so much for being part of 2020 today. Thank you. You can call us 1-800-880-876 to be part of our conversation. We're talking through some, well, important issues and, as you can hear, sometimes quite sensitive issues when it comes to these issues of domestic violence and family violence. Uh, what types of domestic violence have you had to endure in your life? Our, our talkback line is open, one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six. You might like to tell us too uh, what your church might do to help play a role in family harmony and in stability. As you know, and uh, Steve, interested in your comments on this too, but you know, when, when we talk about the ministry of reconciliation, we're talking about a uh, in a Christian sense, reconciliation between man and God. But what flows out of that relationship between man and God uh, is reconciliation with one another. And that one another reconciliation happens within families. And it is something that 
Christian churches are very familiar with and working towards helping that to happen. Issues like forgiveness and Mm. those things that churches often talk about and you think, oh, they're not talking about forgiveness again. Well, the reason why they're talking about forgiveness again because it is so important in our in our relationships. But reconciliation is not something that in your practice in family law that you put aside because you spend a lot of time helping people to reconcile, Steve. That's right. And I I have to straddle a bit of a fence in a way because clients primarily are coming to see me to receive a, a legal advice and a legal solution to their problem. Often, though, personal problems don't fit neatly within a legal solution. They require some kind of broader um, resolution and it's an interpersonal resolution. A parenting arrangements is a classic example of that. When people, when, when a couple have a relationship that breaks down and they, they can't get along anymore and they've got children, that can be very difficult because they've got to still be able to work together towards uh, parenting their children even though they might not stand, want to stand the side of each other anymore. So whilst we can provide a, a legal solution and a framework within which they might um, be able to govern their relationship, the best arrangements for their children occur when they're able to put aside those differences. And yes, they might have to use the framework of the court order or a parenting plan, but they they go on a path towards uh, reconciliation with each other and understanding, yes, well, I appreciate that you still have a valuable role to play in the life of our children and I can accept the significance of that and I appreciate what you do. It's it's quite funny actually to to see people who might fight tooth and nail for every night or hour of time that they spend with their children and I can certainly understand why they would do that. But when you speak to them several years later, the arrangement is completely different and they might have uh, given up a lot of time that they were spending with their children but they love it because it means they can actually do more in the time that they have. They're not always having to be the parent who runs the children here and there. So um, that comes out of people being able to re-establish their lines of communication. You can be a part of our conversation. one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six. 0 Our talkback line is open. one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six. Back with more Steve Potts in just a few moments. It's Neil with you on 2020. Our special guest this hour, Stephen Potts, family lawyer. We are talking issues today, domestic violence and family violence. And we've been talking about some of those types of definitions, uh, Stephen. Let's move on a little bit and talk about children because they're often the ones who get caught up in uh, domestic violence. Sometimes we think of domestic violence as, uh, you know, a, a husband beating a wife, mm. uh, all sorts of, you know, just simple ways we can uh, talk about that sort of definition. But, but of course, children are watching everything that happens within the family and they are often the, uh, the innocent uh, recipients of very dreadful uh, circumstances and experiences in their early life. That's right. And both uh, at, at a state level, most legislation tries to provide levels of protection for children. And under the uh, Family Law Act, there's also considerations that are taken by the court to protect children. One of the things I think we might have talked about uh, last time we spoke together was the way in which a court makes an order about children and their living arrangements with parents. And we talked about the fact that the court has to consider the children's best interests as the paramount consideration. And when it talks, when the court considers what's in a child's best interest, there's some primary considerations and then there's a, a whole list of additional considerations. But those primary considerations are, are the desire to maintain a meaningful relationship between the child and both parents, but also the need to protect a child from harm, whether it be physical harm, psychological harm, 
being exposed to abuse, neglect or family violence. And so what the court's got to do, when it, when it has a situation where there is family violence and is also being asked to make an order that helps maintain the relationship between both parents, what the court will usually do is put more weight on that need to protect children from harm because um, obviously children are far more vulnerable and the court's trying to balance those uh, long-term arrangements about maintaining relationships with their parents with protection in the immediate future while they're not really capable of protecting themselves. Steve, when everything has fallen apart and uh, you've had to engage a family lawyer, you're going to go through the courts to actually secure a uh, a, a divorce, uh, how much does the court uh, take into consideration the evidence for family violence when all of these things are are, are working themselves out. It is quite a significant consideration. So uh, the previous caller, um, Dana, she had mentioned the fact that she has a temporary protection order. That would be a, a factor that's taken into account by the court when the court's making its decision, and not just in the decision about what the arrangements should be, but even just the way in which the case is managed. So often with a children's matter, there might be an opportunity for a mediation or something of that nature. Where there is a prevalence of domestic violence, the court's usually quite reluctant to put people in the same room. Even if they have mediators and solicitors with them, they typically try and keep them apart just so that the person who has been the victim of domestic violence is not being uh, intimidated or or made to feel as though they just have to capitulate to what the other person says. Our talkback line is open, 1-800-880-876 to be part of our conversation. Caitlin is in Queensland. Hello, Caitlin. Welcome to 2020. Thank you. Caitlin, what's your question for Stephen? Um, my question is just regarding, um, I've been with my um, husband for 13 years and just um, our relationship is disintegrating as a result of emotional and um, verbal domestic violence and I was just basically wondering how that goes through the system in terms of being able to prove um, that sort of thing because I am still in the process of actually deciding whether or not to leave the um, situation um, just because it's obviously sometimes it's a bit intangible it's not like it's on physical um, domestic violence as the old um, definition used yeah. to be. Um, it's just mainly I'm um, suffering um, emotionally as a result of it and my main concern is if I do um, end up going through with the decision to leave at least um, temporarily with the hope to reconcile down the track, um, what actually happens in terms of the legal ramifications. I mean, obviously you have to think in a... You know, in a Christian way, but also have to think in a realistic worst-case scenario. Um, if my husband was to say, you know, I am suffering depression, that I'm not coping well and everything like that, I just don't want to lose my children. Yes, well, look, depression in and of itself is not a factor that disqualifies people from caring for their children. So if I can put you at ease with that, the court is not going to be critical of you because of uh, any feelings of anxiety or depression you might have because the relationship is breaking down. Um nor would the court be um, persuaded that uh, just because you might be prescribed with antidepressant medication that there's any concern there. If if I told you how many people who I act for or who go through the family court system who are prescribed antibiotic, uh, sorry, antidepressants, uh, you'd be astounded at just how many people it is because it's such a traumatic thing. Yeah. In terms of um, the the evidence that you might need to establish the the 
you're quite right, it is more difficult to get evidence about those intangible things. What I would say to you is if there is somebody that you're going to who is able to keep records of what is happening, then speak to that person. So, for example, if you're speaking with a GP, I can hear a little baby, I think, in the background there. If you're speaking, to, if you're going to the doctor, for example, to, um, in relation to your child, and, but there are other issues and you're able to speak to the doctor about what's going on, the doctor will ordinarily be taking notes. Now, when you go to court the first time, you can include in your statement what's happened and you can mention the fact that you've spoken with your doctor. If it proceeds all the way through to a trial, that doctor's notes can be subpoenaed. Now, that doesn't mean just because you told the doctor that you experienced domestic violence doesn't prove that you experienced domestic violence. That's a, a form of self-reporting. So it, it, there's limited weight. But most of the time, the court doesn't isn't bound by the rules of evidence. And so what it's trying to assess is, is the nature of the evidence that you're giving consistent with what you've told other people? Does it have that almost like a smell of truth to it? So if you've got somebody that you can talk to who has a way of taking a contemporaneous note of what's going on, that's one way of establishing... Uh, that you have been subject to emotional abuse. The same for friends who might have observed you upset after a telephone conversation or after a, an argument with your husband. And that that information doesn't all have to be given um, with all of the supporting affidavits or witnesses who turn up to court at the first occasion. What needs to happen really is that you just need to say, this is what has occurred. And as the court looks at that and says, I'm satisfied that that occurred, then on a temporary basis, that protection order is likely to be granted. Okay. Okay. Do you find in your experience, I've been advised by someone um, in my my old church, basically, that if I want to save my relationship, they advised against um, an, um, a DVO just because it doesn't really seem to help in the situation in terms of, um, yeah, fixing the marriage. Do you find in your experience that that can be avoided at all um, or is it recommended to get that no matter what? Well, my this is a personal preference. My personal preference is for protection orders because I guess I've dealt with them for years and years and years and I've seen them used very effectively and I know that their primary purpose is to protect people, okay? That being said, um, sometimes people are able to resolve a matter through the court, not necessarily with a protection order, but with an, what we call, would call an undertaking, which is effectively a promise to the court. And you can, your husband, for example, you might make an app, let's say, for, just for argument's sake, you did make an application for a protection order against him. He might turn up to court on that first day and say, look, I don't accept everything that's been levelled against me. I, I don't admit that I did all of those things. But without admission, I'm prepared to give an undertaking. I'm prepared to make a promise to the court that I will be of good behaviour, that I won't commit acts of domestic violence, that I won't do, and it might have a list of things that he he will or won't do. Now, that doesn't create a protection order. So if he breaches it, there's no criminal consequence to him. But it does mean that if you have to make an application to the court again in the future, You've got both evidence and his promise to the court. It makes it a little bit easier, but it, it gives him just that little bit of a, almost like a grace period. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? So that yes. that might be one option, but I always uh, prefer to err on the side of a protection order because um, I like to see people protected rather than left vulnerable. Yes, I understand that. Does okay. that answer your question, Caitlin? Um, yes, yes, that does. Caitlin, thanks so much for being part of 2020 today. Thank you.
1-800-880-876 if you'd like to be a part of our conversation. We are talking about domestic violence, family violence, and as you know, we spend a lot of time on 2020 uh, talking about how we can have an effective marriage relationship uh, for a whole life, a lifelong relationship. We're also appreciating today there are realities that when things go particularly bad and domestic violence is one of those that can go particularly bad and not easy to find solutions always, uh, that uh, sometimes you'll need a family lawyer to go through uh, picking up pieces of broken relationships, broken families. Stephen Potts is our guest. You can call us and be part of our conversation. We're talking about domestic violence. You might like to share with us what sort of domestic violence you have had to endure, uh, how much... Uh, do you put uh, up with before you seek safety? And uh, how much do you put up with before you actually have to call the police? You can give us a call. Be part of our conversation today. one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six. Back with more in just a short while. It's Neil with you on 2020. Stephen Potts, family lawyer, is our guest this hour. We're talking through issues, domestic violence and family violence. Uh, Steve, let me just ask you before we take another call, uh, there is a sense, isn't there, you're juggling uh, the difference between uh, using the sledgehammer approach when someone comes to you as a family lawyer. They're obviously at a point where they want to get a divorce and get out of this whole thing. Uh, There is a sense, too, as a Christian, you say, well, you know, I believe that marriage is a lifelong Mm. uh, relationship designed by God. And uh, and there is a sense in which there's a softly, softly approach, too, that you always uh, are looking for opportunities to provide some level of mediation that might save a marriage. That's right. And probably when I think back to when I did my university degree, probably the most valuable subject I did was alternate dispute resolution because you're quite right. Court is a bit of a sledgehammer. It's necessary because some people will never never agree. And so somebody needs to act to uh, to resolve the dispute. But by and large, most people are actually able to work out an arrangement uh, whether that be towards reconciliation or even if they if the relationship has broken down, they're still able to reach a resolution about care of their kids. So, for example, um, there is specific requirements that uh, people participate in mediation about their children before they can even file an application with the court. And when people come and see me for the first time, usually once I've got an understanding of what the issues are, the very first thing I'll say to them is, okay, well, how are we going to frame up either an offer or a way of sitting down to talk about this without ending up in court. Because if you end up in court, you will get a resolution, but you have very little control over what that resolution is. You hand, it all, you hand all of the decision-making over to a judge, and he or she's going to make the decision. Whereas if you're able to sit down and talk through things, you might find that where you're at is actually the result of um, misperceptions or misconceptions about what's actually happened during the relationship. And you might have a lot more control over how you reach a resolution on a dispute. That's particularly relevant. Uh, one of the earlier calls talked about her mother. It's very uh, common to be involved with a person who's working with uh, other family members, not just their spouse, to try and reach a resolution. And they, if you're able to go through that alternate dispute resolution process, you tend to get people who resolve the dispute better in the long run and stick to their agreement better than uh, sticking to an order. Because everybody's agreeing together That's instead right. of they having to abide like... by a, 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 some, a legal order. Yeah, yeah, they don't feel like they've got the dirty end of the, of the outcome. <laughs> That's right. At 1-800-880-876, if you'd like to be a part of our conversation or you might have a question for family lawyer Stephen Potts, let's take another call from Al in Kempsey in New South Wales. Hello, Al. Welcome to 2020. Yeah, thank you, mate. How are you? Very well, Al. What's your question? Yeah, mate, no, just a question for Steve. Look, buddy, I've... Um... 
raised my little boy by myself since he was four days old. Uh, we, for a couple of years, it was backwards and forwards for the family law courts. But each time she'd get a like a decision, like fresh to custody or whatever, she wouldn't take it up. Anyway, long story short, three and a half year ago, she backed up and took off first of all up north, and then she went to Western Australia. She has no contact at all with the little fella. Now, about 18 months ago, I asked her to sign a passport because we we were invited to go on a missions trip to the Philippines through our church. Mm -hmm. Uh, She refused. About six months ago, I asked her again about signing a passport, and she still flatly refuses. And legally, I've been told that, uh, well, the, the, the stories I've heard is that because she won't sign the passport, I have no way of being able to get it without her signature. Uh, that's quite, that's partly true. What you what you need is either the uh, the minister, the government minister, to, to make an allowance for you, or you would need the uh, an order from the family court to be able to do it. So when um, and this is a very common situation where where one parent doesn't have much involvement in the life of the other children, and there yep. and then doesn't want to allow the other parent to travel. Typically, I get them in the lead up to Christmas. I get lots of inquiries like this because people want to go overseas for the holidays. So yep. it's very common, um, or just before school holidays. What um, what you need to do first of all is contact the passports office, which is uh, within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and see whether you can get the necessary forms from them. I think. Remember, it's called a yep. B B B nine, but they'll have a, a form. B9, yeah, B nine. It's like a, a process that they go through where they will then contact the mother and ask her to fill in the paperwork. If she still says no, they're unlikely. You're unlikely to have the minister make the decision for you to, to grant the passport. What would probably have to happen, particularly in view of the the history of uh, your involvement in the family court, is that you would then need to make an application to the family court, and you'd right. need to when you do that. There's a couple of things that I'd suggest you do. The first thing is, obviously, you need an order that enables the passport to be issued. And if the mother doesn't sign it, then you need a, a clause that says that if she fails to sign it, a registrar of the court signs it on her behalf. You also yeah. want to think about how old's your, your son? He's almost eight, mate. He's almost eight. Okay, so if you have a passport now, you get a passport now, that will expire when he's 13 because a child's passport only lasts for five years. So what you need to think about is including a clause that enables that passport to be renewed and a process for renewal in five years' time because you don't want to have to go through the whole thing again, particularly if you've spent money on a lawyer going through to get the passport. Then you need to have a think about the orders that provide the mechanism by which you travel. So you said that you wanted to go to the Philippines on a missions trip, whether it be yeah. the Philippines or any other country, ideally yeah. you'll have an order that says you'll provide mum with a certain amount of notice, might be two, three months' notice of your intention yeah. to travel, and you'll give her a copy of the itinerary and perhaps the ticket. I appreciate nowadays you don't usually get a, a paper well, ticket. Well, often. Sorry, Steve, for a sec to cut you off, but where the problem is is that I don't have any address for her. Um, I have no way of contacting her. Her old phone number has been disconnected. So, yep. if that's the yeah, case, then you still you'll it very very difficult to try. All I know is that she's in the Port Hedland area. Okay, well, um, there's a couple of things that you that you might be able to do. The first is that uh, a lawyer may be able to track her down through um, inspection of electoral rolls in Western Australia, um, yep. and there are also if she's in receipt of. Uh, any form of government assistance, for example, through uh, Centrelink, then there's yeah. certain location orders that can be obtained from the court. But that, whether or not you can find her doesn't um, 
doesn't prevent or so it doesn't uh, allow you to skip the court process. You'll still have to go through the court yeah. process, and you'll probably have to satisfy the court that you've done everything you can to try and locate her, and yeah. still give still give that framework about how you'll travel. There are certain countries, obviously, that are more volatile than others. Philippines is a, is not a particularly volatile. It depends where in the Philippines you go. Some parts are. That's Some parts, right. yeah, in the in the in yeah. the south yeah. can be, but. Um, yeah. The, the other thing that you can show um, the, the court is where you're going and how that compares with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade's traveller warnings. Often um, you might hear that countries are given a, a warning uh, about do not travel or reconsider your need to travel. Have a look at where it is that you're going and, and see whether or not the place you're going is in with, within one of those restricted travel areas because if it's oh, not, sure. the, court, the court's yeah. going to be much more willing to allow you to go. But yeah. I can tell you from yeah, well, experience... Under a high risk area, mate. No, no, I mean. that's yeah. right. But um, I can tell you from experience that nine times out of ten, you'll have no issues getting the passport from the court. Does oh, that help, that, Al? It, it certainly helps. Thank you very, very much, mate, because the information I was given was that I had no hope at all. Oh, you'll get, get it. Passport for my, yeah, my, yeah. I, I would be pretty confident that you'd get the order. You just will have to go to court for it. Okay. Yeah. Al, from Kempsey, thanks so much for being part of 2020. Our guest is Stephen Potts, family lawyer. We're talking through issues to do with domestic violence, family violence today, and, uh, of course, a little bit of a sideline there onto uh, an issue with passports. You can be a part of our conversation. You might have a question to ask. Uh, not too much time left remaining. Call us now if you do have uh, some input today on 2020. one 800 Back with more in just a short while. Great to have you along with us. Neil Johnson with you. Our guest this hour is Stephen Potts, family lawyer, talking through issues domestic violence and family lo- violence. Uh, of course, uh, in light of the Family Law Act, you might have a question. There's still some time to call one 800 Stephen, let's uh, talk a little bit about the things that happen uh, when you've gone through uh, processes towards getting a divorce, uh, issues like property settlements. What sort of way does the family court look at domestic violence when there's been evidence of that and and when you come to dividing up the property, family assets? It's, it, it's one of those areas that it's not specifically covered in the legislation. Um, when the court has to make a decision about the division of property, the first thing it does is, is try and work out what exists and what it's worth. But the second thing it does is assess the contributions that both parties have made to that pool of assets. That, that involves looking at what they came into the relationship with, what's happened during the relationship and, and so on. Where, when, when the court weighs those contributions up, it looks at direct financial contributions, money that's been brought into the relationship, but it also looks at non-financial contributions. So that might be a classic example of someone who might do improvements to property. And then there's contributions as a homemaker and parent. Now, where domestic violence sits with all of that is that it's not specifically within one of those kinds of categories. And we have a system of no-fault divorce in Australia, so particularly when the court's assessing um, conduct in a relationship, it doesn't usually have an impact on a property settlement. But the way the court brings it in, and it started happening in the late 1990s, is a particular case called Kennan. And what happened in that case is the court said, effectively, sometimes the contribution that has been made by a person is more significant because of the fact that they did it whilst the victim of significant domestic violence. They're not, a, they're not an argument that uh, is run that often and because of some difficulties with evidence, it can be difficult to succeed in them. I would have thought more often than not they don't succeed, but they, 
when they are run properly uh, and when you have the evidence, they can actually have profound impacts on the outcome of a property settlement. So perhaps the best way to, to illustrate it is with a, a case from many years ago that my firm was involved in. Husband and wife were in a farming uh, in a farming communi- community. They had uh, The husband had had the farm in the family for a number of generations. So he had a, a fairly significant weighting on his side of the ledger for the, this initial contribution of what he'd brought into the relationship. But he was a particularly aggressive and violent man, and he had uh, perpetrated quite severe domestic violence on the wife. And the wife in that case, had uh, her arm had been broken at various stages. She'd not just raised the kids and worked on the farm, but she'd done all of that whilst being a victim of domestic violence. And what the court found uh, at the end of the trial there was that an adjustment should be made to her because not only was her contribution as a, as a homemaker and a parent significant and the work that she'd done on the farm significant, but she had done it all while often in pain as a result of this violence. And so the court actually adjusted her share of that property, I think from memory, by about 5%, which on the pool of assets meant an extra Two hundred odd thousand dollars to her, but that's that's more the exception rather than the rule. And is there a sense in which the conscience or the moral standards of the judge actually uh, helps to direct how that distribution might happen? Not specifically, because the court still has to work within the framework of the legislation, and ideally that that framework is a, is as objective as possible, so that whether you're in front of one of any judges that might sit in the court. You should have an outcome that's within the same general parameters. That being said, where it does come into play is when people want to argue till they're blue in the face, for example, that they didn't do something. And it might not even be a significant point to that that legal framework, but what it goes to is showing the credibility of the evidence that they're giving. And so what happens is by denying that they perpetrated domestic violence, they think, well, the judge isn't going to make a decision about me um, that's going to be... It's going to be adverse, but by skirting around the issue and never being honest, the court says, well, if I can't trust them on that piece of evidence which is irrelevant, how can I trust them on all of the other evidence which is relevant? And so the the judge then starts to say, well, when I've got two different stories, I'm going to prefer the, the evidence of person A over person B because by and large their evidence on those topics was more credible. Steve, let's come back to what we've been talking about as the foundation uh, for our conversation today, and that is domestic violence, family violence in general, Uh, people putting up with all sorts of things. We started talking about definitions, and uh, we can talk about all sorts of definitions, uh, you know, even right down to, uh, you know, uh, sexual violence and those sorts of things within uh, within, uh, marriage relationships. These are some of the areas that people oftentimes keep you know, undercover, and they don't, they don't want to talk about these things. They're either embarrassed or no, ashamed. Can be a lot or, of shame or humiliation. Uh, those sorts or, of things. Yeah. Let's just touch on that for a moment. Uh, if you were in a relationship where you were suffering some level of domestic violence, there was sexual nature, and you felt you just can't talk to anybody, uh, how do you start to deal with that? When do you actually draw the line and say, no further, I've got to take action? Well, now. I think I think you've got to take action straight away. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to take legal action, but you need to take some kind of action straight away. And that that first port of call is probably with a pastor or a counsellor who can actually talk with you in a safe environment where you can explain what's going on and they can listen and give you some guidance as to how to emotionally how to cope with that. That's, I think, the, the first step. If you're a victim of, of violence, the very next step would be to, depending on what it is, contact the police. Usually I say to clients, um, if there's an issue, give me a call. But if it's serious, call the police straight away. 
because the police will come and they'll intervene. They'll remove someone from a situation, take them, put them into custody, or tell them to, to vacate the property, at least until the court can consider it on an urgent basis and maybe the dust can settle. But the important thing is is not just to sit there and take it. The important thing is to get in contact with somebody and start to talk about what's actually happening. Because often people who are victims of domestic violence start to then say, well, maybe it's something I did. Maybe it's the way I spoke to him. Maybe it's because I don't do what she says. And all of a sudden, they're placed in a situation where they're putting guilt on themselves for causing a terrible situation. And it's entirely the, the fault of the other person. Time running out, down to about a minute, and we'll be into the news. Uh, just to mention, there are a whole bunch of dif- different uh, types of helplines you can call. You can simply Google them. Uh, there are some from the Department of Child Protection uh, for Women. There's a Women's Domestic Violence Helpline. Uh, there's also a Men's Domestic Violence Helpline. Of course, uh, Lifeline uh, 13 11 14 is always a good uh, point of reference. If you've got an issue, you can call Lifeline. They'll be a very big help with able, uh, your ability to take those next steps. And as you say, uh, Steve, uh, if your life is in danger or your children's lives are in danger, uh, don't worry about the helpline. Dial triple O and, right. uh, and have the police around straight away. Uh, it is uh, just a mention of uh, 25th of November, White Ribbon Day, a day to uh, uh, to raise awareness about issues of domestic violence. Time has run out. Steve Potts, family lawyer, managing director of Newman Turner Lawyers in Brisbane. Thanks so much for being with us on 2020. It's been great. Thanks. Love listening to Vision in the car, but can't pick us up at home or work? Listen live online or even on your smartphone. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.